Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Billy, his willingness to serve and to um, read and to understand and to bring uh, the word today. We, Lord, we pray that you will give him clarity of mind. We pray that you'll um, speak through him to us. Lord, we pray our hearts will be open to the word that is brought this morning. And Lord, may it be changing and challenging to us. We commit Billy to you now and we thank you for this time as we come into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Yes, the Waikato, Waikato, sorry, is littered with Hannahs. So it's good to bring some of them together into one building. It doesn't happen very often. Um, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 19? As we consider, uh, continue our series through First and Second Samuel. I feel even the, the, the series that we've done through First and Second Samuel has been a blessing in itself. For me, books that otherwise I probably wouldn't have dug into, but through it I've seen the goodness of God manifest in the nation of Israel and how that is so applicable to us today. And last week, Shane Watermoth shared with us from chapters 13 through 18 about the life and death of David's evil son, Absalom, and the bitterness that was found throughout his life and that was shown in his death. And where we pick it up this morning, King David hears of the death of his son, Absalom, in battle. And this is his reaction to that and also uh, his servant Joab's rebuke of his reaction to that. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'm going to focus on um, just the first eight verses of chapter 19 this morning. So I'm going to read it now. I'm going to start on verse 33 of, of chapter 18 for context. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that your commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose, took his seat at the gate, and the people were told, Behold, the king is sitting at the gate, and the people came before the king. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for your scripture, Lord. And as we dive into this text now, Lord, I ask that you would just give us all open hearts and open minds to what you want us to hear from this. May your spirit 
work through me as I share this, Lord, as your spirit has worked through me as I've studied and prepared this. Help my words be faithful to your gospel, I pray. Amen. When I was first told that I was going to be speaking on 2 Samuel 19, um, Andrew Linton texted me and he said, you're going to be speaking on 2 Samuel 19. I'm like, righto. So I went home and I read the chapter. And I read the chapter and I shut my Bible and I went, dang it. I don't know what to do with this. And as I was kind of looking at it, I was like, okay. And my eyes glazed over to chapter 18. I was like, ooh. So I text Andrew. I said, has anyone taken chapter 18? And he's like, yep. I'm like, okay, Billy, 19 is your chapter. And as I continued reading in chapter 19, my eyes glazed over to chapter 20. So I text Andrew. Has anyone taken chapter 20? He said, yes. So I knew God wanted me in chapter 19. And I praise God that he kept me in chapter 19. Um, because through further study and understanding of the wider narrative of 2 Samuel, it's been such a blessing to me. And I've been come to be pointed to God and to Christ in a way that further solidifies in my mind the truth of 2 Samuel, uh, sorry, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed. I've titled our message this morning, A Distracted King. And as we consider this passage, I want to take us all this morning through the journey that I went through as I came to a deeper understanding of this passage and understanding the context of it and then what we can learn through it. So the three things that I want to consider this morning is firstly the context of David's grief. We will then look at the enormity of David's responsibility. And finally, we will consider the failure of David's perspective. And through all of this, I hope to bring to light the key idea of today's message, which is this. A heart that looks only to its own interests shows no regard for God's lasting glory. A heart that looks only to its own interests shows no regard for God's lasting glory. And before I jump in to the real meat of this passage, I want to make one note, I guess one disclaimer. Um, it's no real secret that a key theme of this passage is that of grief. I have not had to go through much deep grief in my life. I'm very blessed in that way, but I also understand that many people here have, uh, may be going through that right now. And through this message, I will at times be quite critical of the grief that David is going through, or at least his reactions through it. And my intention is in no way to disqualify anyone who has been through grief or is grieving at the moment. In fact, grief is a good thing when we grieve what God grieves. My intention is not that at all. My purpose is rather to focus on the desires and the priorities that came through in David's grief. So just a little disclaimer there as I start. So let's start. We're going to look at the context of David's grief as we start this morning. Because as I first jumped into this passage, I was jumping in the middle of a narrative. I was opening up a book in the middle and reading a chapter and hoping that it made sense. So I shouldn't be surprised that it didn't. So when I looked back and I understood the wider narrative of 2 Samuel, I saw the importance of it. And I know that we've been going through it as a church, but I think it's of value to quickly run through it now so it's fresh in our minds. And I could liken the, the story of David and 2 Samuel to a similar story in my life. Throughout my younger days, I'm probably still in them, but my younger days, <laughs> really enjoyed my soccer, my football, whatever you want to call it. 
And as I was growing up, I, I was making the good teams. I was playing really well. According to Dad, my goalkeeper, goalkeeping ability caused quite the discussion on the sidelines. Those are his words, not mine. So, And as a, as a young boy playing football for my school, I always looked up to the first 11, which was the top senior team. I always wanted to be in the first 11. I would stay late after my games to watch their games, and I would look up to them as such role models for me. So I got better in my skills and abilities as I grew up, always having that goal of being in the first 11. And I found myself in year 13 trialing for the first 11. And I trialed well, and I made the team as the starting goalkeeper. I was super pumped up. Preseason games came along, and I was playing well. I was making some good saves, and my teammates were happy having me in goal. As I eyed up my first game of the season, I saved up all my pack-and-save money, and I bought the most expensive goalkeeper gloves I could find. And the night before my first game, I found myself in my bedroom trying on my new goalkeeper gloves, watching YouTube videos of my favorite goalkeepers making great saves with inspirational music on in the background. I was ready. And the day came along, I was making my first 11 debut. And I tell the story, none of my family were there. I don't even think they know the story. And um, it's a difficult story to, story to tell. About 10 minutes in, the opposition decided to take a shot from so far out, it was almost a joke. It was going about this fast, and my teammates had already turned around. They're going back on attack because they're like, oh, Billy's got this. I did not have it. <laughs> the ball slipped straight through my $200 gloves and went into the back of the net. 1-0. It doesn't just stop there. The next week, copy-paste. The exact same thing happened. Such a build-up. Such a fantastic build-up. A promising beginning for me. But when the pressure came on, things started to go downhill. And when I think about that, it actually reminds me of the story of 2 Samuel, in a sense. You see, the book begins with David as the king of Israel, as he's taken over from his evil predecessor, Saul. And during the first nine or ten chapters or so, David's reign is one of success and favor in the sight of God. David is honoring God, and as he's doing so, he is having success in battle, and he's having spiritual success as well. But in chapter 11, things start to go downhill as David has an affair with a married woman named Bathsheba. David then goes on to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed so he could have her for himself. Here comes David's downfall as a leader. His preseason was finished, and when the pressure came on, he dropped the ball. But just like me, he didn't just drop it once. 2 Samuel doesn't only paint a picture of David's downfalls as a man, but it also paints a picture of David's downfalls as a father. His son, Amnon, sexually abused his half-sister, Tamar. And then his other son, Absalom, who was Tamar's full brother, out of cold blood two years later, had Amnon killed. And in chapter 13, Absalom, who is a key character in our story today, flees to a place called Geshur after he murders Amnon. But David asks him 
to return to Jerusalem through his servant Joab. And as Absalom returns to Jerusalem, he stands by the king's gate and it says in chapter 15 that he won the favor of the the Israelite people. He won the hearts of the Israelite people. And as Absalom gained this favor and privilege with the Israelite people, he grew hungry for power. He grew jealous of the throne that his father had. And Absalom decided to abuse his power and begin a revolt, a conspiracy against his father. And as Absalom grew in favor with the men of Israel, and we we get the idea from Scripture that this is a, a majority of the Israelite people who are now with Absalom on his side. David became afraid and he fled from the throne in Jerusalem into exile with a few loyal supporters, leaving the throne free for the taking. David was in the wilderness with his few loyal supporters he had and Absalom had won the hearts of the vast majority of Israel. So that leaves us in a position where David is in the wilderness and Absalom is in the position of power in Jerusalem. The next moves for Absalom are absolutely critical. But through some poor advice that Absalom received through a spy sent from David, Absalom decides to lead his people into battle against David's people himself. He wanted to lead them in. This battle resulted in a great victory for David's soldiers. And this battle also resulted in the death of Absalom, who was killed by David's right-hand man, Joab, re-saluted to as the king without the crown. This was against the wishes of David. And this leads us to where we are now, where at the end of chapter 18, David hears the news of his evil son's death and he is devastated at the news. And this is why understanding the context of this passage is so important for us. David is not just grieving his son, he is grieving the enemy of Israel. A man in opposition to his leadership. So, as we consider the context of David's grief, that lays a better foundation as we come to look at this passage. So now as we've considered that, I want to turn now and look at our second point today, which is the enormity of David's responsibility. The enormity of David's responsibility. So as we look at the battle here pictured in the last few chapters, we see it's mainly focused around one thing, the the throne of Israel. David had it. Absalom wanted it. Before 1 Samuel, God ruled over Israel in a theocracy, essentially meaning he is the ultimate ruler who also worked through people such as Moses and Joshua, for example. But in 1 Samuel, the people of Israel demanded to God that they wanted an earthly leader who would lead them into battle. They ignored God's warnings about what this would bring having an earthly leader, and they demanded that they wanted it. So God instituted a kingship in Israel. And since then, the king has been the earthly representative of God's reign in Israel, instituted with the task of leading in a way that is honoring to God, that is pointing the people of Israel to God. The king is the one the people look to to bring unity 
and wisdom whilst coming under the ultimate reign of God. A couple of weeks ago, Reese alluded to that idea of it's called a theocratic monarchy, which is a fancy way of saying it's a monarchy that comes under the reign of God. Now, don't get that confused with what you'd call a constitutional monarchy, which is what you'd see in England. Um, I had to be careful what I say because mum might tell me off. But in comparison to the monarchy in Israel, the monarchy in England, the king or queen there don't really do a whole lot. (laughs) The king of Israel is tasked with leading God's people which is an almighty task and it should be given to a man who desires to honor God. It's a common theme throughout scripture that the way of the king often dictates the way of Israel. As we look at the reign of Saul on the most part as a man who dishonored God and did not fear him at all, Israel was a nation at war and was far from pursuing God. We see, however, through the initial reign of David, Israel is a place of military and spiritual success. However, through his series of errors and mistakes, the division and war came upon Israel through the person of Absalom. All of this to say one thing. The king of Israel should be a man who fears God, who desires his glory, and who leads his people with dignity. And through a greater understanding of the role of King of Israel, it brings to light two clear truths from our passage today. Firstly, this. Absalom was not fit to lead as king. Absalom was not a God-fearing man. Time and time again, this is shown through 2 Samuel, as he grew jealous of his father's power and authority and he tried to stage a revolt against his throne. He used his charm to divide God's nation and turn the people against their own king who was anointed by God. See, David was described often in scripture as a man after God's own heart. We could describe Absalom as a man after Absalom's own heart. His bitterness and jealousy came to the forefront in the revolt and exposed to us time and time again that this is not a man who is worthy of the king of Israel. It's an important thing for us to understand as we look at the wider narrative of 2 Samuel. Absalom was not a man who would have led Israel in a God-glorifying and honoring way. And as Shane mentioned last week, there is some irony found in the fact that for a man whose name means the father of peace, He brought so much division and calamity upon God's nation. Absalom was not fit to lead his king. Secondly, we see the reality that at this time, David has enormous responsibility. At the time of Absalom's death and at the victory for David's soldiers, coming into chapter 19, Israel is heavily divided. Many of the people joined Absalom's now defeated army. And the others of them are David's loyal servants who stuck with him so loyally and are returning back to him after giving him the most decisive victory of his reign. 
They saved his throne and they kept his throne from falling into the hands of an ungodly man. David's first responsibility before all others is as the king of Israel. And the nation needed a king now more than ever. They needed a leader to unify the nation, to heal the wounds that were brought from Absalom's revolt. David's responsibilities are now to step up, to bring honor to God, to honor those who so loyally stayed with him and bring in those who came under Absalom and unify the nation, bringing Israel to a place of peace and unity before God once again. The kingship of Israel is a mighty responsibility. And when we further understand that, it lays the platform for our passage. As we consider the context of David's grief, whilst also understanding the enormity of his responsibility, it brings to light what is our third point today, which is the failure of David's perspective. The failure of David's perspective. So there David is, a nation divided. Servants had put their lives on the line to save his throne and the nation desperately needed a king. This is what leaders are made for. If there is ever a time for David to stand up, it is now. Let's read how David stood up and led at this moment. Read from 18 verse 33 to 19 verse 4. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people who steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. What, a, what an inspiring leader. <laughs> Instead of standing up and leading his nation as his kingly responsibility would dictate him to, David goes by himself and he wallows in his grief for his son. Not just his son, but Israel's enemy. The very one who challenged his throne, who cast dishonor on his name and tore Israel into division. David was mourning with an intense grief. The continued repeating of, oh, Absalom, my son. It, it shows a grief so incredibly deep we've not seen from David. Now, there is nothing wrong with grieving a son, even if it's not a particularly great son. But David let his grief allow him to lose perspective of what his role is at this time. He let his grief overcome his kingly responsibility. 
In his selfish grief, David was looking only to his own interests and showed no regard for God's lasting glory. You see, David was delivered from the hand of his evil son, which was in accordance to the will of God. Would you turn back with me to chapter 17? See, at this point in chapter 17, a few chapters back, David is in the wilderness and Absalom is now on the height of his power in Jerusalem. And as we mentioned before, this is an incredibly vital moment for Absalom. For if he can put David away once and for all, the throne would likely be his. Absalom had a military advisor whose name was Ahithophel, who's talked about in chapter 17. Now, Ahithophel was a military advisor for David. And upon the division of Israel, Ahithophel left David and went and made his allegiance with Absalom. But David had another advisor whose name was Hushai. Hushai stayed with David. He did not go with Absalom. But David said to Hushai, you go and you pretend that you've done exactly what Ahithophel has done. You go and you pretend like you are a military advisor for Absalom now and you give him bad advice and then you come back and tell me what's going to happen. So in in Absalom's eyes, he's got two advisors at this time. He's got Ahithophel and he's got Hushai. And he calls them both in and he says to them, well, what should I do right now to put an end to David? Ahithophel proceeds to give him some what is wise military advice. He says, look, Absalom, I can get together 12,000 men tonight and I can send them out and they will defeat David. And that likely would have been the case because David was on the back foot. He was not prepared for a battle at all. And this is also important because it would have kept Absalom at home. He wouldn't have led them out. But Hushai, knowing that this was unwise advice, he said to him, Absalom, how about this? See, Hushai appealed to the arrogance of Absalom in order to deceive him. He said, how about this? We wait a couple of days. We build up the biggest army we can build up. And then you lead them into battle against David yourself. How cool would that be? How much of a legend would you look like? Probably said something like that. And he appealed to the arrogance of Absalom, which was a smart move because in terms of military advice, that is foolish military advice because that gives David time to regroup, to build up some form of defense. And that also exposes Absalom as he's leading his men out into battle. A battle Absalom would ultimately lose. The reason I share this is because of what is said in in 2 Samuel 17 verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. It was in the Lord's will that Absalom would be brought down, that he would fail and be harmed. God used the advice of Hushai to save David and his throne and defeat Absalom. 
David, however, was too struck in his selfish grief to recognize this and bring recognition and gratitude to God. And what we see in the rest of the chapter is that Joab hears of this deep grief that David is in. And he doesn't hold back, really. And it seems like harsh words. But I truly think these are the harsh words that David needed to hear. And as we consider this rebuke of Joab, keep Proverbs 27 verse 6 in mind. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And in his rebuke to David, Joab gives him two clear consequences of his selfish grief. And then he gives him a call to action. The first consequence that Joab outlines of David's selfish grief is that he brought shame upon his servants. It's seen in in uh, verse 5 of chapter 19 and the start of verse 6. When he says to him, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters, of your wives and of your concubines. He's likely reporting from what we see in in verse um, 2, verse 3, when the people stole into the city as people who steal in, who are ashamed when they flee in battle. See, what Joab is saying to David here is he has brought shame upon his servants who have been so loyal to him because they came back after providing him such an important victory, one which surely saved his throne. And they came back to find their king weeping and mourning about the victory. This is like if the All Blacks won the World Cup final and they go back in the changing room to celebrate and they find Sam Kane in there crying because he was going for Australia. This brought shame and sadness on the Israelite soldiers who put their lives on the line for this incredibly important victory. And David's role at this time is to bring unity upon Israel, but he couldn't even recognize those who have been most loyal to him. Joab then outlines the second consequence of David's selfish grief, which is that he has wished peril upon Israel. He highlights that in the second half of verse 6, where he says, For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. And it sounds like a rash comment to make, but if you look at uh, verse 33 of chapter 18, David admits it himself when he says, "Um, Oh, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? If David had died and Absalom had lived, this likely would have resulted in the success of Absalom. Likely his reign on the throne of Israel, which we've already outlined, would have been catastrophic. To have a man on the throne in God's nation who had no fear for the Lord at all. In his selfish grief, David is exemplifying that he is blinded by his grief and is showing no regard for God's lasting glory in Israel. Joab finishes his rebuke in verse 7 with a call to action. He tells David that if he does not go and fulfill his kingly duties and stand before his people and lead Israel, he will lose their trust and respect as king. He warns them that none of his servants would stay with him. And in verse 8, David responds, 
to the rebuke of Joab by taking his seat by the gate. A seemingly small gesture made by David, but it's incredibly significant as it represents his returning to the exercise of his kingly authority. Who knows what the further consequences would have been if David continued in his grief. There we have it, I guess. David returns to power. The rest of chapter 19 outlines David's return to Jerusalem and what happened on his journeys home. And the rest of 2 Samuel continues to highlight David's downfalls as a leader as he continues to make mistakes. But he is, albeit repentant, which is a trait I seem to think we probably wouldn't have found in a king Absalom. So what does this mean for us? As I bring this to a close this morning, I have a few points of application that I want to bring to us as a church. Firstly, can I appeal to to those of us today who are in positions of leadership? Would you understand the influence that a leader has upon their followers? Whether you're a parent, a teacher, a coach, a mentor, a ministry leader. Would you understand that followers look to their leader for guidance? This passage highlights the impact that David had on his followers as he turned their triumphant victory into a crushing defeat just based on how he reacted to it. Could I even appeal to my fellow youth leaders this morning? whether that's youth group or Kinahe Youth or Kinahe Kids or whatever ministry you are in. Can I challenge you and encourage you as I've been challenged to treat our roles as leaders with the reverence and respect that it deserves? If we want to present young people mature in Christ, we need to model that ourselves. We need to show them what that looks like and we need to lead with dignity. Exemplify to them what a life in the pursuit of the glory of Christ looks like. Secondly, to all of us this morning, I want to ask this question. And if there is anything that you would remember this morning, ask that it would be this, even if this is a question you ask yourself at the start of each day. Does the desire for God's glory reign supreme in our minds? Does the desire for God's glory reign supreme in our minds? See, for David, what reigned supreme in his mind was not the glory of God. It was the life of his evil, rebellious son. What would it be like for us to learn from this? To live lives that radically desired and pursued God's glory above any other interests that we would have. The Westminster Shorter Catechism opens with the question, what is the chief end of man? The answer is simply this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Is that reflected in our lives? What would it even look like for us as a church body? as Hukunui Bible Church, to completely embrace that and as a church body desire to honour God before all other things. I even consider the conversations we have during fellowship after church. 
I myself, I'm so guilty of talking about the sport and the weather and be like, cool, see you next week. Um, and there are so many people in this building who I've gotten away with just talking about that afterwards. And I'm sorry. Because I've been challenged by that. If we are truly Christians who desire God's glory above all other things, wouldn't that be reflected in our conversations as believers in the Lord's house? Or would our conversations simply look the same as any conversation you'd have with someone at work? What if our fellowship reflected the type of community we were trying to build? One that is centered around the glory of God. As individuals, we look to our lives and we see so many examples of when God's ultimate glory falls to the bottom of our to-do list. Why don't we evangelize like we should at work, on the street, with the people around us, with our family? Why aren't we sharing the gospel like we should? Well, maybe it's because the desire for God's ultimate glory is not reigning supreme in our minds. Why is our worship so often veiled? Why are we so often distracting ourselves during our time of worship? It's because in our hearts, so often we don't desire God's glory above other things. Even in the way we talk, would our desire for God's glory come through in our conversations? As I close, I want to turn quickly to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Tom preached a a fantastic sermon on this uh, a few weeks ago, which highlighted the covenant that God made with David. That from David's seed, from David's lineage, would come the promised Messiah. Let's read verse 12 of chapter 7. This is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. That son of David who is promised is not Absalom. It is not Absalom. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Messiah who was foretold in the Old Testament, who was revealed in the New Testament, and we live with him today and with the hope that is found in him today. And as we consider the sinful son of David, who is Absalom, we consider the hatred and evil in his heart. May we look to him and see the greater son of David, who is Jesus Christ. And just as David was not willing to see his son die for his throne to continue in Israel, God did not withhold his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. So for those of you today who do not know Jesus Christ, would today be the day that you put your trust in him? Because in him is found the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Christ is our hope in life and death if our faith is in him. So for those of you today who do not know him, would today be the day that you turn to him? And for those of us today who do know him and love him, would the love that he has shown us stir us up to action to desire to glorify him in all things?
Jesus Christ alone is worthy of our glory. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your glory that is so supreme and so beyond what we can ever imagine. I thank you that you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to pay the punishment that we could never pay. And as we look at the sinful son of David, who is Absalom, Lord, we are reminded of the greater son of David, which is Jesus Christ. I pray that we would live lives that reflect your glory and desire to honor you in all things. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.